0: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Lee Bartholomew. It's April 25th, 2017. We're at Nicholson Library at Linfield, and Lee, will start you off with an easy one, which is why wine?
1: Why wine? Um, I think, you know, just like taking a step back, I got involved with wine through working in a restaurant and falling in love with the idea of the fact that you had something in a bottle that I don't think I ever conceived that somebody actually had to work to create. Mm-hmm. and. Exploring it deeper, you know, you get science, you get art, you get intuition, you get to work outside, you get to work inside, you get an interesting group of people to work with, and I think all of those things together, why wine? Not one of those things is more important than the other, I think they're all equally important.
0: And was there a particular uh, route that made you interested in viticulture particularly?
1: Um... Yeah, I decided that I wanted to, uh, I was working in a restaurant in Seattle serving lots of great wine to people and had one bottle one night that was the aha bottle <laughs> of wine, you know, that just made made me think about where wine came from and um, the people behind it. And so I applied to go to graduate school to get my master's in viticulture because I already had my undergrad. Um, and. I had to choose viticulture or enology. so when you get your master's, or it used to be when you got your master's at Davis, you had to choose one or mm, the other, okay. and I didn't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, let me look at the course curriculum, and I looked at all the classes that I would be taking, and all the viticulture ones were the ones that I was actually really interested in. So, um, that's how I got into the, into the grape side. Yeah, it was, Interesting. yeah, I didn't even conceive of the difference between the two. It was like, oh, you make wine. You start from the grapes and you turn it into wine sure. in the bottle and, and that's the whole process. But yeah, the master's <laughs> degree makes you focus, which I think is good because both of them are equally complicated.
0: Sure, sure. And so how did you get to Oregon?
1: Um, my husband is from Oregon, so he grew up in Salem. And after we graduated from Davis, we bought around the world plane ticket, and traveled the world and made wine in places, and, um, and when we came home, we had to go somewhere, and there was his family, my parents lived overseas, and so his family was in Salem, and it felt like a comfortable place to go, and it was Pinot Noir, so sure. it was like a no-brainer, easy to choose where to go, and so we came here and settled down, and haven't left since then.
0: So, when you were traveling abroad, were there certain wine regions that influenced you more than others? Certain ones that spoke to you more than others?
1: You know, we focused on places that grow and make Pinot Noir for okay. the most part, I suppose. Um, I think all of our experiences are guided by people. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it is who you're around and um, their enthusiasm for what they're doing. And it's maybe cliche, but working in Burgundy was it was pretty inspirational you're working with people who you know i worked with a guy who it was his first generation um, and he started sort of from the ground up and then my husband was working at a place that was generations and generations and generations old and so just seeing the difference between those two places being in these really old caves with these old wines that i think one guy pulled out a bottle of wine for us, like, oh, I wish I remembered the vintage right now. It was something in the 50s, like, we're gonna have this for dinner tonight. It was great, and he pulled the cork, and we started drinking it, and he goes, ah, it's just a little bit corked, but we're gonna drink it anyway. (laughs) I'm all right with that. (laughs) You know, so I think just kind of those experiences, really, um, they touch you in Mm -hmm. a way that just the physical process of making wine doesn't or the experience you know we worked in Chile and we worked not making Pinot there but just with people who you're thrown into a situation with them and you're pretty much with them 24 hours a day there's not much time that you're not working during harvest and so I think they all touched Mm -hmm. me but in different ways but mostly because of people. I'm curious
0: as you were traveling globally mm-hmm. um, were you going into situations where you had kind of called in advance or were you just sort of showing up to work and yeah. how, how was the greeting?
1: So the first place we worked uh, in our around the world tour that's not true actually this was in a whole different experience we went to Chile before going to graduate school and okay. decided we were going to go um, have a vacation we had a certain amount of time we were young and loose, no kids, no (laughs) mortgage, Um, so we went to Chile and we were just going to travel around and we thought, well, we're just about ready to start Davis, let's um, go check out some wineries. So we opened the Yellow Pages, which you don't do anymore, and looked up wineries and called a few and just to see, hey, can we come see how you do this thing called winemaking? And we got in touch with this uh, place um, and it was called Vina Calatera. And they said, oh, well, let us let you talk to our winemaker, Brian, he's from New Zealand and um, he'll want to talk to you. And so he said, oh, why don't you guys come in? Cause I had a couple people not show up for harvest and do you guys want to work? Like, yeah, that sounds fun. Sure, we'll work. <laughs> and so we ended up working, I think we were there for three months, had to cross the border cause we had tourist visas. We weren't there planning to work, sure. to cross the border and come back in so we could work. Um, Hitchhiking because we were poor mm-hmm. and we didn't have a car, hitchhiking across the border to get our passport stamped stamp to come back in. So, there we didn't have a plan. We didn't know what we were going to do when we got there. We didn't even know we were going to be making wine. Sure. Um, but, like Brian, we ended up working with on our next trip abroad and he was back in New Zealand. So, you know, just kind of lifelong friends you create. Mm-hmm. And then when we were in, um, We planned then to go to New Zealand and work with Brian, and uh, when we were there, we sent faxes out to a bunch of places in Burgundy. (laughs) Just cold, cold faxing people, and uh, ended up with a couple of opportunities, and yeah, ended up in Burgundy, and I think I showed up in Burgundy, and said, hey, I'm here. I didn't really speak French, just a little bit, and the guy I worked with didn't really speak English. I'm here to work for Harvest. He says, oh, that's great. We have this intern who's already working, and he should be here. Uh, today or tomorrow like huh I thought I had a job here this kind of sucks and it, it turns out they thought I was a guy and they were waiting for a boy to show up because <laughs> the only facts sure. so, so they had no idea so it was an interesting reception but it was a great opportunity to to work there so That's
0: awesome. That's awesome. So then once you got back to Oregon, you yep. have a very, very impressive and varied resume. Can you kind of take us through a little bit, sort of step by step, how you got yeah. where, you were, where you went?
1: Yeah, so again, when we got to Oregon, it was the beginning or the end of 99, beginning of 2000. And um, I just cold called a bunch of people in the industry. We didn't know where we were gonna be working. We stayed with my husband's family in Salem and just uh, called a bunch of people saying, are you looking for help? And there weren't very many people at that time that needed help in the vineyard. You know, they would have the winemaker do both things. Mm-hmm. Not enough, not very many places were big enough to need it. And I called Archery Summit and uh, Sam Tannehill, who was the winemaker at the time said, yeah, why don't you come in and just chat with us? So I came in and talked and we had a really nice conversation. And um, he said, well, you know, we don't have anything now. We have a vineyard manager, he's fine and we're good, but you know, it's nice talking to you. And then. <laughs> couple weeks later he called said hey Gary Andrus who was the owner at the time or managing director is gonna be here why don't you come meet him and came met Gary and before I think as a young lady I probably shouldn't have put myself in this position of being alone in this house out in the (laughs) middle of a vineyard with Gary and one of his buddies and they were drinking and having a great time and by the end of it I had a job that I didn't really know what I was gonna be doing and he didn't really know what I was gonna be doing but he wanted to hire me and i wanted a job so i was there and the vineyard manager was there and turns out within about a week to a couple weeks the vineyard manager who was there on staff was let go oh. i think there was brewing discontent I on see. both sides or he decided to leave somehow it was a mutual separation and i just happened to be in the right place which i don't think was happenstance on gary's part he kind of knew what he was doing and I started there in 2000 and worked there through the vintage 2013. So Mm -hmm. Gary left in 2001, Sam left shortly thereafter, 2002, Mm -hmm. 2003 timeframe, and Anna Matzinger, who was the assistant winemaker at the time and I um, were there that whole time together uh, as co-general managers at Archery Summit, me as the vineyard manager, her as the winemaker and which was great because we could share tasks. You know, when a winemaker's busy, usually the vineyard manager's not. Mm-hmm. So I could take on more winery roles and, or you know, general managing roles. So that was a great, great partnership. In 2013, she left, I think in 2012, to pursue her own winemaking stuff, adventures. Mm-hmm. And I left at the end of 2013 and started working for Results Partners, which is a vineyard management company working for a lot of great wineries and um, and I've been there now this is starting on year four so really just the two places in Oregon but you know with results partners touches a lot of different sure. people which sure. is super fun
0: so did you, when you were when you, you sort of took over at Archery Summit you kind of kind of fell into it a little bit I did were there any kind of um, Were there moments of doubt? Were there moments that you felt like, was there a moment when you finally felt like, okay, I got this?
1: I don't think you ever feel like you (laughs) totally got it right. (laughs) I remember walking around one of my first days at Archery Summit with a clipboard and writing down everything. You know, there's this herbicide over here or, you know, this row is this width over there and the guy's... Till the very day I left would laugh about me with my <laughs> clipboard, and there you were. I remember the first day I saw you with your clipboard, and yeah, I think there was a ton of doubt and lots of long work days and weekends and just never stopping work because there's—it's very stressful, and you don't have mm-hmm. control over a lot of what happens. Mother nature is in control more than we are, and so um, that's difficult and so I think you never really stop doubting you feel a little bit more comfortable with the decisions you used to not be comfortable with but every year there are new things that are thrown on you so um, I don't think there was ever one moment it certainly got easier but you know there's always a new challenge around the next corner
0: so how did it differ from your experiences working abroad how was Oregon different
1: Um, It was the first time I was ever in one place for a full season, (laughs) so all my working abroad was internships, you know, going from Northern Hemisphere to Southern Hemisphere, so they were, you know, three to six month long stints in places where you never really set your roots. Mm -hmm. You learn a whole lot and see a lot of different things and get exposed to tons of different stuff, but you never really see the full cycle Mm -hmm. anywhere, so that was the first time (laughs) that I ever you know, felt like, okay, pruning through bud break and all the canopy management and harvest. And it was great, <laughs> you know? sure. really great. And it's, you know, and everybody talks about it with vineyards and winemaking, you only get to do each task once a year. So really I've been doing this job for, this is my 18th season, 18 times. How many things do you feel like you're an expert at and only do 18 <laughs> times? Not very many, Sure,
0: <laughs> you know? sure, sure. So, so do, you, do you have a vineyard philosophy?
1: Oh, gosh, do you have a vineyard philosophy? Um, I think every year makes you readdress your philosophy. And so just like this year is a late start to mm-hmm, the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it maybe shifts the direction of the philosophy. I think, I don't know. I've never really thought about what my philosophy is, but I, I think it's more of a um, let the site express itself. Don't try to change it too much. I think as a younger person I was more excited about adding some fertilizer here and maybe some compost over there and doing a little bit of this and doing a little bit of that and more and more I'm comfortable with just seeing what the vineyard wants to do, correcting any little things that might come along but not trying to change it on a whole, sure. you know, major, in a major way. but little tiny levers Mm -hmm. rather than trying to (laughs) flip any really big ones sure um but it changes every year with new things that we're learning in science and academics and new things that um, new winemakers who i'm working with might be interested in exploring so i think it changes but it's more of one of sight expression than anything sure sure
0: so you mentioned the changes in science and things like that with how how much else you have to do? How do you find yourself keeping up with the changes in vineyard science?
1: Um, so when I started at Results Partners, my office is in my home, and so I have a chair in my office that I thought would be a great place to sit and read scholarly articles, and it's where my dog sits when <laughs> I'm at my desk. <laughs> um, but I think there are lots of, we have a vit tech group that gets together. There are lots of articles that like the Oregon Wine Research Institute puts mm-hmm. out, or There's Grape Day for OSU, all sorts of little seminars. Mm -hmm. And you know, the internet's great because you can do a webinar on most recent happenings. Just, you you know, I think I've been a part of so many different organizations and they still send me all of their information and new people come along and you get a great newsletter. So just the same way everybody else does, sadly. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So what made you decide to farm biodynamically?
1: Ah, um, I think the idea of farming biodynamically is, for me, one where we're, you know, in, at Archery Summit when I chose to start that, we were making great wine. But is there something that we could be doing that could make it even better? You know, is there one more thing that we could be doing that we should be trying that will make even just the smallest incremental difference? And if so, we should try it. It wasn't because of a deep-born philosophy of, you know soil and planet mm-hmm. influences or connection it was more um there's something there that that could make it better and let's try you know again it's that little lever that you can mm-hmm. you can flip and hopefully you make a change that at the end of the day you see and i think you do see it you know otherwise i wouldn't do it anymore <laughs> Sure. <laughs> but i think you do see it and you know the vineyard that we chose to do biodynamics at archery summit was um the vineyard that was the most difficult to farm, mm. which was maybe a good idea or a bad idea, I'm not sure in retrospect, but um, it made a difference. And you know, when we started, it was a vineyard that was like, should we even keep this? Should we continue farming it? Should we do something different with it? Um, and it, it's kind of one of those backbones of the production now. And I think I'm probably farming six or seven different places now that we're helping to farm that are farming biodynamically and everybody for different reasons. But Mm -hmm. I think if you can flip one more lever to increase the quality, why wouldn't you? Sure, sure. You know?
0: Have you found over the years that consumers have cared more about that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Do they care about it now?
1: I don't think so. (laughs) You know, I think they care about organics in their fruits and vegetables and in the food they eat. And I think some of them care about that in wine, but I don't think it's hit the level of interest or enthusiasm or um, that people really see the difference in quality, Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure that they're willing to pay for it. And we hear that time and time again at Oregon Pinot Camp. We always ask the people who come to Oregon Pinot Camp that question, you know, do you seek out organic wines and do people, do your customers pay more for them? and it depends on the market. There are certain markets where people are interested in that, and there is a majority of it that they're not. You know, I think sustainability, there are a lot of uh, different statistics, but people are interested in sustainability, whether they're actually going to pay more Mm -hmm. for it. You know, I think we're still um, teaching people about brand Oregon, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's going to take a little while, but I think um, They pay for better quality wine and if what we're doing is creating better quality Mm -hmm. and we can ask more money for it that way, I think that's the way that the consumer gets to speak to you and tell you, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing and they might not know all the little steps that go into it or understand what biodynamics is, Mm -hmm. but they're, they're giving you an affirmation by sure. purchasing the bottle Surely,
0: like, like the end result regardless yeah. of how you got there yep sure
1: exactly and i think that's probably changing a little bit i haven't kept my finger on the pulse of that very much but i mean if i if you look at any other thing that consumers are buying right now organics is important people are talking about effects on health so mm-hmm. it's changing but slowly okay and
0: so you and your husband also have your own label. We correct? do. So tell us a little bit about Dominio Four.
1: Yeah, we started Dominio Four in 2002, and um, Patrick, at the time, was working at Rex Hill with Sterling Fox, and he had taken welding classes in college. <laughs> and. Uh, while everybody else was welding truck beds and trailers patrick was making beds and furniture <laughs> and cool stuff like that and they all laughed at him but uh his first job welding was working for sterling kind of fixing things in the shop which is totally outside of what his norm mm-hmm. is what patrick's norm is but um it was a step into the wine industry and he did that for a year or a year and a half it wasn't it's not really his persona Mm -hmm. or anything that matches his personality. So um, we decided to start a little brand, a couple hundred cases. We talked to an accountant, Irvin and company, and said, yeah, we're going to start this uh, brand. We're going to plant some vineyards out in the Columbia Gorge. We had bought with my parents a piece of property, a 30-acre piece of property in 2001, we're going to plant some grapes and then maybe in 2004 or 2005 we'll have enough grapes to make some wine. And they said, wait wait a minute, you don't want to wait till 2004 or 5 or 6 to have grapes and make wine, you need to start making wine right now so that consumers get to know your name and you can, you know, just start building your brand. Sure. And uh, we said, oh, you know, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> idea, okay. <laughs> but we're not going to hire a winemaker to make 200 cases of wine, that's silly. You know, Patrick had gone to school and studied vineyard soils, and so he's kind of a soils guy, and I was the vineyard person, and we were going to hire the winemaker. And uh, we said, but we're not going to hire a winemaker for 200 cases, so Patrick will make the wine, and we'll buy grapes from somebody in southern Oregon. So we found uh, the Moors down in southern Mm -hmm. Oregon and bought um, Tempranillo from them, Mm -hmm. and we found some Syrah in the Columbia Gorge from Lonnie Wright and bought the Syrah from him, and worked at the studio, at the Carlton Winemaker Studio, and Patrick made a couple hundred cases with Andrew Rich and Lynn Pennerash, and just a great group of people who sort of took him under mm-hmm. their collective wing and um, taught him how to make wine, because he had taken a few classes at Davis. True. <laughs> but, and we had worked, of course, around the world, always in the cellar, so you know the general process, but it's different when you're doing everything. And, um, he started making the wine then in 2002, was our first vintage. And as we grew and as our vineyard was planted and the fruit came online, it was an easy addition of a, a couple tons every year. Mm-hmm. And so it never felt like the moment when we would hire a winemaker and the wine was selling really well and people liked it. And I was like, well, maybe you should just keep being the winemaker. Actually, I'm not even sure we ever said, maybe you should just keep being, it just happened. <laughs> and so he was the, the winemaker from '02 on and we've grown now to 4,000 cases um, partially through you know just our own planting which we only planted about eight acres out in the Columbia Gorge on our three sleeps vineyard. It's Syrah and Tempranillo mm-hmm. and Viognier and um, it's been planted through, you know, mostly family, mm-hmm. getting together <laughs> on weekends and helping, it was bootstraps, which sure, sure. <laughs> is great. There's so many fantastic memories and every 4th of July still to this day. So started in 2002, the 4th of July weekend, family comes out and all camps on the property and does some big project. So in 2002, we were planting. Mm-hmm. In July, which is crazy, and you shouldn't <laughs> do that. But that was when we could get everybody there. Sure, and sure. when we were ready to go, I had a baby in 2002 in May, and in July, we were planting the vineyard. So my maternity leave was spent on Three Sleeps Vineyard <laughs> getting the grapes planted, which was great. Sure. Not at the moment, not at that time, but <laughs> in eventually, retrospect, eventually. yeah. <laughs> so every fourth of July, that same group of people comes out and uh, we planted a labyrinth a few years ago. We put up a barn, you know, they like to do, they're kind of afraid of the grapes themselves, the plants. They don't really want to do a lot of touching of plants, but hard jobs. They mm-hmm. want to come out and do a hard, big job, so.
0: That's nice to have. It's great, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. great. <laughs> it's nice.
1: um, but yeah, so 2002 through now, and then we just purchased a piece of property here in Yam, right outside of Carlton, mm-hmm. in Yamhill Carlton, AVA. And uh we're getting ready to plant that this fall nice, so yeah. well, now very exciting.
0: What made you decide to do warm weather grapes?
1: Um, we lo- have loved the Columbia Gorge and the Hood River area f- from when we lived in Seattle, so since the mid early '90s, we would go there and do some, some windsurfing, mm-hmm. hang out just We just loved the sure. place. Um, we love those warm climate varieties, Tempranillo and Syrah, we just like to drink them. And it always seemed like if we're going to have a vineyard, it should be out here. I think the climate's more forgiving. You can grow grapes that are warm climate varietals, that mm. are a little easier to grow, um, a little bit easier to sell, so we thought, which is not really very true. but. Um, <laughs> Oh well, <laughs> and uh, my mom and dad at the time were retiring mm-hmm. and looking for a place to live and so we gave them a book of a thousand places to live in the United States and on the last blank page wrote in Hood River, Oregon <laughs> and put uh, the little stats on Hood River and they came out and fell in love with it and my mom said it's a beautiful, the most beautiful drive she's ever had to the grocery store. <laughs> and Highway 84, it's gorgeous, so it's just a nice town. We always figured we would live there, so we thought, oh, in five years, so in 2007, we'll be there. And then there was another five years, and and then we decided that was probably not ever gonna really happen realistically, and my Mm -hmm. mom and dad have finally realized that, I think. They've finally realized that we're never actually gonna live out there, but.
0: Well, you gotta retire somewhere. Yeah, exactly,
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's right. So that's why hood river I, I think it's well it's right outside of hood river I, there's not one really good reason except for we just love the area and mm-hmm. it was a place we vacationed to a sure. lot and camped probably uh, camped in a tent a mile and a half from where the vineyard is right <laughs> now and we tried to find vineyard land and patrick was really good at hopping over fences not getting shot at <laughs> digging holes in soil mm-hmm. you know that was his thing anyway is vineyard soils and just looking at the land and seeing what it looked like was gonna give. And this one that he went to and hopped over the fence had a little um, card outside that said, for sale, like this big, (laughs) like, oh, it's actually for sale. (laughs) I remember teasing him, like, you found one that was actually for sale? And the guy who owned it, uh, they were selling it and it had been an old cherry orchard. Mm -hmm. And when he got married to his wife, 15 years prior to us buying it. She said, I won't marry you unless you get rid of that cherry orchard. So it was just tall stumps that were cut off at about chest height with a oh, chainsaw. Gosh. Yeah, and so it was just sitting there fallow, which is great for vineyards that it hadn't been farmed for those last 15 right, years. Right. You know, and we just pulled the stumps out and got the land prepped from one of the farmers that has cherry orchards on a couple sides of us. And wow, yeah, it was meant to be. That's, so. That's great. <laughs> Yeah. So
0: what? When with your new vineyard, are you? I assume you're doing Pinot Noir. Or are you trying something we are. else as well? Mm,
1: Pinot and Chardonnay. Chardonnay. We're staying pretty traditional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty traditional. But we're buying a lot of Pinot Noir from people in the valley right now, and this will give us our own sure. source of Pinot that we can expect. I think it's going to be one of those hard things, catch twenty two. You know, you have your own place, uh, you know what to expect. But we've been getting a variety from about seven different vineyards, and so this will shrink shrink the world a little bit. Sure. But a little bit more of our own destiny, Sure. which is great. And then Chardonnay, because why not, <laughs> you, know, you have to.
0: <laughs> this is a good reason. You have it's to, it's to. Exactly yeah. You have to, exactly.
1: And we've found ourselves, even over the last couple of months, all we're drinking is white wine right now, which is kind of funny. Interesting, yeah. interesting. So times change.
0: Because I have a variety. A variety it is of very varieties. good, yep. So tell us what about your position at, at Results Partners, what, yep. what is it that you do and uh, has it been like a new challenge for you and in what way?
1: Yeah, so my title is Director of Viticulture. I started as the viticulturist uh, at a company that was just very good at farming and so you know every farmer, every vineyard manager is really a viticulturist also which means um, you know are there any diseases right the spray program what problems sort of a problem solver mm-hmm. essentially is what my job is at results partners and i did that for um, just a year without adding any help to the vit department it was just me mm-hmm. um and i hired a woman named Jessie Delabra a couple of years ago and she became the viticulturist so i became the director of viticulture and we um, yeah jump around from vineyard to vineyard i have Uh, A few clients that I work directly with and then work with all of our sites just making sure soil analysis is being taken and tissue samples are being taken and we know what the crop estimate is and um, that if there are any pest problems we Mm -hmm. know what's happening. Um, So that's kind of in a nutshell what my job is. I'm also the IT
0: manager. <laughs> nice. Nice. How? You just never I, I know. No.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I've got slightly more interest in it than everybody else around me. Um, but yeah, we're farming 2,500 acres of grapes right now wow. in the North Willamette Valley, Yeah, which is quite a lot. And I think doing a really solid job of both the farming part and trying to educate and elevate our industry-wide knowledge of viticultural issues.
0: Sure. Sure. So, do you seek partners out? Do people come to you?
1: Oh, both, I think. Um, you mean like new clients yeah. or yeah, yeah vineyards? Um, mostly they come to us, so sometimes it's through casual conversation. Hey, you know, for years we've been doing this on our own, and we need to focus more on sales, Or which is usually what people... People say, mm-hmm. you know, we've been doing this by ourselves, but we're getting pulled in too many different sure. directions. You guys look like you're doing a good job. Could you come out and take a look? And so we'll come out, take a look, and um, give them a an estimate of what it'll cost. Yeah. And people will come back and either say, great, or they'll say, oh, I can't really quite afford to not do it myself right now, but let's just stay in touch. Sure. Most often, though, it comes organically through new developments. So we'll have new people move into the area, or Maybe not even move, but buy vineyard land in the area and decide they want to grow grapes or start a winery. And so we'll start with development, and we have a team that does development, headed up by a guy named Luke Pedotti, and he'll do, you know, either I'll do a site evaluation for them. Here are the soils that you're on. Here's what the, you know, elevation is. This is what you should plant. This is what it should look like. And then, you know, we'll take it there through development, and then it'll become one of our production clients. So. I like doing it that way. I think it, sure. it's just more organic, easier way to do it.
0: So uh, are you actually doing the, doing the actual farming as well or are you just doing the, the prep and the analysis?
1: Um, me, myself? The, the company. The company, we do it all. Do it all, yep. okay. Yeah, so the find a piece of property, prepare it, we'll analyze it, prepare it, put stakes and plants and wires in, do the farming harvest the grapes, deliver them to the The winery. The whole thing? The whole thing, yeah, all of it. There's nothing, we we have a drone to take aerial images, we'll contract out with an aerial imaging company to do other kind of images, you know, everything, no matter what. Interesting. If it has to do with vineyards, we'll do it. (laughs) Interesting. And sometimes we get suckered into doing things that don't have to do with vineyards, (laughs) just because we're there.
0: The blurred line, right? Yeah, Yeah. it is, Yeah.
1: yeah, it is.
0: Was it was the transition difficult for you from Archery Summit into this?
1: Not at all. You know, I was worried that it would be because going from an, one estate vineyard to um, a non, you know, just not being associated with just one place, I was worried that it was going to be really difficult. But it was very freeing actually to feel like, you know, I felt like I had blinders on looking at the 120 acres of Archery Summit land for those 14 years. <laughs> pretty deeply Mm -hmm. to like, oh the blinders are off and here's twelve foot spacing and here's four foot spacing and what's going on there versus here and you know then everything in between. This is really interesting to be able to see the industry in a different way. You know, I always knew that stuff was there, but I'd never visited it or knew what was going on. And now, you know, I can see a little issue popping up over there and kind of see the rest of the clients in our portfolio to see where else I might be worried about that issue. It's really interesting to just have, just it's just like a big library rather than sure, one book. Sure. So.
0: And I know there's been some issues, uh, We have, obviously phloxera was in the 90s, I know there's been a, a recent issue as well, has that yeah. been affecting you? been your, your vineyard? Yeah,
1: it has. So there's a new virus called red blotch That's virus. That's what it red blotch, yeah. right. and Yeah, we're seeing it pop up in lots of different places, and it's causing us to, um, well, we're taking a lot of samples, we're trying to see where it is, and what effect it's actually having on wine quality Mm -hmm. and production, Um, and the academics don't know yet, so there's doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of listening to webinars, a lot of kind of... Fingers crossed, mm-hmm. you know, all of it. Because yeah, it's another big issue that's effect, that's affecting the industry now, but has the potential to affect it a lot more than it is sure. today. Cause you can just see it spreading. Mm-hmm. And I think buying new plants and planting vineyards is much more risky right now because a lot of this virus has been coming through nurseries.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's a group that's getting together with the OSU, the USDA uh, in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and then a few interested industry members uh, in the nursery business trying to figure out how do we keep clean plants only, clean Mm -hmm. plants coming into the state of Oregon. We don't have any grapevine nurseries in the state of Oregon that are very large. We have a couple of small players, but most of us are getting grapevines from California or from Washington. So how do we ensure that the vines that are coming in here are clean of virus before they get here? Problem is we already have some virus now, so we can't put a quarantine on Mm -hmm. ourselves because it's already, it's already here. here. So how do we keep it from spreading? How do we keep it from becoming a bigger problem than it looks like it's already going to be? Um, It's a tricky question right now. So yeah, it it takes up a lot of time. Sure. Um,
0: Must have a lot of people worried, I would imagine. It
1: does, yeah. I think there are a couple people who haven't planted vineyards uh, recently because they're worried enough they want to wait a year and just see what happens um, Mm -hmm. and what we can learn. And then, like myself on my own property, we had thought we would plant 20 acres, and we were putting nine in this fall, you know, half of what we thought we would plant, just because I agree. I kind of want to see what research is happening, and our site is almost in the epicenter of where we see most of the problems mm-hmm. so just I don't know what's gonna happen with it but it doesn't feel like it's gonna be very good mm. yeah. but we'll get through it you know I think we always do there's a problem a solution and you change the way you work a little bit you know with Phylloxera you figured out where the problem was decided when to pull those lines out and knew what we had to do going forward that was a little bit easier problem, I won't say less impactful but easier, mm-hmm. we knew what the solution was, it was planting on rootstocks. Right, right. We're not quite sure what the solution is right now because you can have a clean vine right here you put in the ground and a dirty one here and it will transmit the virus through an insect. So how do you keep that insect from coming here when we don't know what the insect is quite yet. Uh, interesting. So we still have a little bit more to learn. Yeah. Phloxera, we knew.
0: Yeah. This okay. we don't really know. Interesting. Is it other parts of the world as well?
1: Yeah. Well, um, it's in Virginia. You know, it's on the East Coast. It's in Washington. It's here. It's in California. Um, So, yeah,
0: interesting.
1: People are working on it.
0: Ch- changing gears a little bit here, yeah. I know you've worked with a number of organizations in the industry as well. Can you, I know, for example, I know you're the chairwoman of the Oregon Wine Board. Yep. Um, can you tell us a bit about different organizations you've been in and, yeah. and maybe some of the roles you've played?
1: Sure. So I was on the Oregon Wine Board for six years, so they're, they are three-year um, terms. And I served my two terms and was the chairwoman in 2015 or 2014, one of those two years. (laughs) Um, And then it must have been 2015 because it was a long legislative session. Uh, And during that time, Harry Peterson Nedry was the president of the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association. And I think probably the biggest thing that we had to do during that time was land use reform. Mm -hmm. So there was a little (laughs) bit of land use issues around what kind of events and things could happen on winery properties. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big, fairly industry, there was a lot of contention. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an easy decision. Everybody didn't want the same thing. And oftentimes, I think in our industry, we find ourselves all with similar perspectives and similar desired outcomes Mm -hmm. with these kind of things. That one was a little bit less like that. So there were some industry consensus that needed to be found. uh, That was not easy, but really interesting to be part of. And I think being part of the Oregon Wine Board and Oregon Wine Growers Association, um, you get a look behind the curtains Mm -hmm. as to what goes on in our industry that even now, I don't know what's happening currently. You know, there's a lot that just happens. that gets headed off at the pass before the rest of the industry even knows what's happening, you know, what's going to happen with taxes and with new legislation that's coming out around immigration or any number of other things. Super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Super interesting and very time consuming for the people who are doing it. So that was really fun um, just to know what goes on outside of the grape growing world, you know. Mm -hmm. It was as much of an education for me as anything else, I think to our industry. Um, I'm serving on the live board right now as the tech committee representative on the board and that's just a couple weeks old, maybe a week old. Mm -hmm. Um, So that'll be interesting. I don't really know what that means. I spent a lot of years not joining live (laughs) (laughs) at Archery Summit. You know, we were doing more than what live does so it never felt like we needed to do that. I'm typically not a joiner in that kind of way, which is funny because I've served on a lot of committees (laughs) for not being a joiner. and, uh, but I think for our industry, and for marketing our industry, and for bringing people together, I think it's a really important and valuable organization. And I think there are a lot of people who are part of the live um, community, and so it's pretty broad. So when live puts out a newsletter or a piece of information, a lot of people see it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very valuable for our industry to have. Um, geez, what else have I done? There's a tech committee group in the Willamette Valley that we've been getting together since the beginning. You know, it used to be five or six of us that got together and sat around a table and talked about, what are you seeing and what are you seeing? And let's go look at that and um, talking about things. And I think, I don't remember how long ago it was, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I remember Alan Holstein, who's kind of, I'm gonna call him gruff. Um, he says, you know, we were trying to decide we wanted to have a a more substantial group that got together and have people who decided on what we were going to talk about and just become a little bit more organized and Alan says, and we need to figure out who's going to be the chair of this and he kind of looks around and he looks at me and he says, do we want somebody vanilla? (laughs) Or do we want somebody who really has some, I can't remember what word he used, you know, some." I don't know, muscle. And I was like, I think he just called me Vanilla. <laughs> Pretty sure he did. <laughs> He's, he nominated himself the chair, and I think we all agreed, yeah, you'd be a great chair, Alan, and he still is the co-chair of that committee, which is hysterical. And I am sure he does not remember calling me Vanilla, but I remember him calling me Vanilla. <laughs> and I someday will... <laughs> give him some kind of Rocky Road nomination. That's right, that's right. (laughs) I don't know if I've been a part of any other committees. You know, there's this Clean Plant Network that I'm part of. I'm part of a lot of little things that Mm -hmm. happen. Some of them stick, some of them don't. Suppose the redesigning of the Oregon Wine Research Institute Mm -hmm. sort of 2.0 happened, I don't know, maybe five years ago where Oregon Wine Research Institute was started and the way it was designed and set up was not ideal. And so there was sort of a re a reimagining of the way that would work and best function within Oregon State. Mm-hmm. And so there was a group of us that was pretty committed to figuring out a way to make it work. because I think it's a very important part of our industry and something that we need as an industry is to have a group of researchers that are really focused on um, Advancing, you know, our understanding of grape growing and winemaking in Oregon, Mm -hmm. and OWRI is the right way for that to happen, so I think there's a commitment on the part of a lot of people. It just needed some massaging in how it was organized.
0: Sure. So. So when you're with the wine board, and you have this kind of big project where you're trying to bring consensus to an industry that doesn't necessarily agree, what was your How
1: did you go about it? No, there were. um, I think my way, just in general, is a lot of talk. Not, I'm not a big um, debater. I don't want to find the pressure point and and attack it Mm -hmm. right on. And I think Harry Peterson Nedry is the same way. So um, we did a lot of let's sit down and talk about how we can make this work. You know, these people see it one way and these people see it another way. Can we find a middle road? And so I think I'm more of a consensus builder than I am trying to push one agenda. And um, so were the other people on the wine board at the time or in the Wine Growers Association at the time who were trying to find consensus. Nobody wanted to back down from their Mm -hmm. perspective. And I think at the wine board and the Wine Growers Association level, you kind of have to be, not kind of you have to be thinking about the whole industry so you can't um, we were never we never allowed ourselves to think about what's in it for Lee or Mm -hmm. what's in it for the Willamette Valley even or what's in it for Pinot Noir but what's in it for the state of Oregon so I think I flew down to Southern Oregon to hear what the Southern Oregon wine growers um, thought about this idea and to try to explain to them what I was hearing from folks in the north and just a lot of Mm-hmm. Talk and a lot of giving a little bit this way and taking a little bit that way, so i don 't know you know sure. it 's poli- it just sounds like politics, sure, <laughs> sure. I guess it was, but I think <laughs> in it it didn 't feel like we anybody had to give up everything that they were wanting, nobody got exactly what they wanted mm-hmm. I think, and at the end that 's usually what you have to do. Sure. everybody gives a little bit
0: so what's it like being a woman in the oregon wine industry and has that changed since you entered the industry
1: it has i've remarked at the last couple of um tech group meetings that sometimes it's 50 50 women to men and for years i was the only woman in the room you know so there was plenty and i i never at the time it didn't register to me or i wasn't nobody thought about it Mm -hmm. nobody ever pointed me out as being any different than anybody else. I don't feel like it was ever an issue or a highlight mm-hmm. or a low light or anything. And same with just working as a vineyard manager, like at Archery Summit, I came in and I don't remember one time where the guys made me feel like the girl. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it, either I was dense and didn't notice it <laughs> or it just never was an issue. But now that it's more and more women, I'm starting to notice it even more. So or I'm starting to notice it more, just like, hey, I think there was even one meeting where there were more women than men. So it's definitely changing. Um, and it was always more so there were plenty of winemaker, female winemakers, just not on the vineyard side. Mm-hmm. So when you get out to farming, and I think that's the statistic in any kind of farming, it's, it's a man's world. Sure, sure. But yeah, I'd, I'd never noticed it in the early days. I was think I was probably too scared. i was just doing my job.
0: <laughs> so, what do you uh, what do you make of the uh, the more women being, especially on the on the vineyard side? Why why now?
1: I have no idea why. Um, I'm not sure I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, because they can, I mm-hmm. guess. Now they know they can. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. I could ask them, but I don't know if they would know either. <laughs> you know? Fair
0: enough. Yeah. Um, are there any notable sort of notable mentors you had when you entered the industry?
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe not when I first entered the industry, but as I was working, I worked at Kane Five in California, and uh, there was a consultant named Ann Kramer, and Ann had worked at, I believe, Domain Shandon. And she was a vineyard manager in the area and was um, doing a consulting job and working at Kane. And she's smart and super into it. And she, working at Shandon, had had long hair and got the hair caught in a tractor and had her whole oh my gosh scalp oh my taken gosh. off. And you can see the scars on her still, but she's still farming, and she's still into it, and she could talk about it, and uh, I remember being super impressed by that, like, holy cow, I don't know if I could do that, and she, um, she's just really smart, and she was inspirational, so I think she was an inspiration, um, the guy who was also the farmer, the vineyard manager there at Cane 5, Benjamin Falk, you know, he's just I think, again, going back to the people, you know, it's all about these. Everybody's got something to teach you, you mm-hmm. know, and just kind of the joy of the job, you know. And Benjamin was never a numbers guy. He didn't sit down at the computer and do a bunch of stuff, but he would spend his time walking out in the field and talking to the crew. And, you know, that was inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Who else? Uh, I think even here in the industry, and I didn't work with him, although I wished that I had Joel Myers. Mm -hmm. He's he's a guy who probably is a lot like Benjamin. He doesn't spend a lot of time behind a computer, but I think he reads a lot. He knows what's going on in research. He stays pretty connected. It's interesting Mm -hmm. to just see these folks and how do you stay so engaged in your industry for so long, Mm -hmm. I think inspiring there are lots I have lots of people I you know I feel like I just want to take a little something from every one of them because everybody's got something to teach you sure Sure. (laughs) the constant student (laughs)
0: Sure. And what about the flip side of that what about people who you have sort of mentored in the industry
1: oh people who I've mentored in the industry Um, my first intern who I had was Kelly her last name at the time was Wagner and uh, she's now the vineyard manager at Adelsheim (laughs) So, super proud of that. <laughs> that's nice. I didn't that's really nice. do anything that's for her, but she was my first intern, <laughs> you know? It's like she was straight out of school, straight out of OSU, and just great, really just into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's one of the women I can count in the room now, yeah, you know, when I look right. around, she's at all these same meetings, so I'm proud of that. Um, and then I think just the crew that I worked with at Archery Summit, a lot of them are still there. Some of them are in Mexico, some of them work with me at Results Partners. And I'm really proud of those guys. You know, they're just, um, I feel like together, we learned a lot from each other. I was fresh, I didn't know anything. They taught me a lot and I think I taught them a lot too. And we have a really good relationship. We keep in touch, you know, I'll Facebook the guys Mm -hmm. down in Mexico or they're checking in with me all the time, probably four or five times a year. Mm -hmm. What's going on? What's happening in Oregon? And it's good, it's a good feeling that way, yeah.
0: So how would you compare the Oregon wine industry to those in say California and and Washington?
1: Um, It's tight, you know, it's a pretty tight knit community. You know, everybody, it's changing a little bit. I don't know everybody anymore. It's growing, Um, but you know what's going on. And if our vit tech group, you know, if there's a problem in my vineyard, I'm gonna have everybody out and we're gonna go look at it. And Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna be embarrassed and not (laughs) want anybody to come because we're all gonna learn about it together. And I don't feel like there's a lot of finger pointing like did you see what so-and-so did (laughs) and it's like oh my god let's go look at it and talk about it and try to figure it out together so there's a lot of camaraderie there's a lot of collaboration Um, it's changing and it will continue to change I'm sure but there'll be still the core Mm -hmm. that's like that at you know at the core of it and Mm -hmm. I think just being able to have some of the pioneers you know, Ted Castile and Harry and David Adelsheim and people like that who are pioneers who are still totally involved in the industry today. I don't think there are very many other wine growing regions that have that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a pretty short history, I suppose, is why. But they're still involved and they're still relevant. And Ted Castile, he's still farming and he's coming and talking to groups about, you know, the beginning, the early days and what he did, you know, when he started the vineyard, so I think that's one thing that I feel pretty lucky to have been in on, being able to meet the pioneers, have them be part of the life.
0: So when you talk about the changes and how it's changing now, what do you see for the future of the Oregon wine industry?
1: Uh, I think it's turning, it's a lot more international now than it was before, you know, we've got money coming in from France, from California, people buying properties, um, (coughs) larger pieces of properties too, so not just, I think the average size of a vineyard in Oregon has been around 15 acres, Mm -hmm. that will continue to grow. At least that's what I'm seeing within our own client network, is probably the average vineyard size is getting larger. Mm -hmm. Um, (coughs) I don't think that's neither good nor bad, it's just different. Same with uh, having people from outside of the country who own vineyards here. That's not brand new, that's happened. Domaine know, is owned by people who don't live here all the time. Um, They're very connected to the industry still though, so it will be interesting to see how connected folks who don't live here are Mm -hmm. to the industry because I think it can go either way. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it is different. Mm -hmm. from what the industry has typically been. so Yeah, I think it's it's good though because one big thing that we've seen over the years is a change in um, marketability and presence of Oregon wines outside of the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. You used to ask people about if they drank Oregon wines and they'd say, oh, no, not really. You know, a very small percentage of people even knew about or had tasted Oregon wine, and you ask people that question now, and the vast majority know what Oregon wine is and have tasted Oregon wine and on a somewhat frequent basis sure. drink it. Sure. So uh, that only comes through, you know, people getting the word out, and if you have people who own vineyards who live in Florida or who live in Virginia, they're spreading the word mm-hmm. to their friends, and I think it's a Interesting. good thing. Yeah.
0: Hadn't heard that perspective before. I like that. It's an interesting point. What about for you personally? What's the future for Dominio for?
1: Oh, I think for right now, um, we're super focused on this piece of property, planting our little acreage. We're moving our winery there this year, mm-hmm. putting a tasting room in. So um, the near future is focused on that. Mm-hmm. I think Patrick and I both want to be able to enjoy our retirement <laughs> so we're planning for 10 more years doing this and then seeing what happens you know where where does that go can we do that part-time and travel we love to travel we want to see more of the world we want to spend time traveling and doing another stuff so sure. you know 10 years and then go do some of that. Doesn't <laughs> mean the winery goes away or the vineyards go away, but it's a transition. Sure, sure. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> and so, you recently won the, uh, the Outstanding Industry Leadership Award at the Symposium. So what does that kind of recognition mean to you?
1: Oh, uh, it probably means that I'm not very good at saying no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, um, and that I've been around for a long time. I think when Back in the day, there weren't very many people to share the, the load, so there was a decision to be made and there was a group of people and it wasn't a very big group. Mm-hmm. So we were, you know, everybody was sort of involved in making these decisions. And <clears throat> once you are kind of in that circle of people who are happy to sit around the table and try to find a solution to a problem, you get invited back a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's nice to be recognized by your peers and by You know, Anna, who gave Mm -hmm. me the award, was nice to hear nice (laughs) things said about you. Um, But I think it just means, you know, the industry's gone through a huge growth where it's required a lot of industry attention and um, direction. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it will continue to be as needy of an industry as it has been, but it's needed a lot of guidance over the time. Otherwise, I think it could have easily fractured. And there are a few people who have been able to hold it together. I don't know that I'm really one of those people that's been able to do the guiding. I'm a much better, um, I'm happy to come in and try to help find the solution. Mm -hmm. But I think there have been some good heads along the way that have sort of led it in the right direction. Mm -hmm. You can't let anything go for too long, I suppose, without helping to bring it together. Otherwise, it might splinter into lots of little groups. Sure.
0: (laughs) Do you you think it's possible, like, will the industry, will it be too big for, to to not need, like, outside help, or, like, people who are full-time doing that? Will will it still be, like, industry-led? Oh,
1: yeah. No, I think even over time, it's, even over the last 15 years, you know, the Oregon Wine Board has a great staff. Tom Donowski is the executive director, mm-hmm. and he does a really good job of focusing the industry. So, in that way, you know, I think, and Jana McCamey at mm-hmm. the Oregon Wine Growers Association, finding the problems, um, figuring out what they are, explaining them to people in the industry who can say, oh, yeah, well, from my perspective, this is what that decision would result in, mm-hmm. and figuring out what the answer is. So, I think in that way, you know they're paid people who are doing that but i'm sure over time and as the industry grows we will need more mm-hmm. of them because yeah it's too much for people to just do on a
0: sure
1: volunteer sort of during the course of regular business right. work it's it takes a lot of effort right. so they're doing a good job though really good
0: so if you could go back to the beginning of your when you're thinking of entering the industry give yourself one piece of advice what would it be
1: oh um I think it would be uh, sort of slow down. <laughs> don't worry so much. I'm not sure. I think that's more of a personality trait than something that I could actually change <laughs> about myself. I don't think that's one of those things. But uh, you know, farming—you stress out a lot. Like, yeah. as long as you're diligent and doing things the way you know they should be done, usually it works out. Okay no matter how much you worry about it. So just don't (laughs) worry about it quite so much. And when Patrick and I were taking our tour around the world and we were in France, and we had a couple of months before harvest started, I was stressed out about not being here, Mm -hmm.
0: working, Mm -hmm.
1: finding a good job, making our marks, you know, finding a perfect career that I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. Like, oh, I was living in Paris for two months with nothing to do. Slow down and enjoy it because I think it goes by so fast. And I look back and I realize I've lived here in McMinnville for 17 years and I can hardly believe it. You know, sure. just like take a deep breath and slow down. Look around. Smell the flowers. <laughs> smell, the, smell the clusters. You know, they smell good.
0: That's good advice. I like that. Well, that's all the questions I have Super. for you. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Or no, I, I think should, I, I said
1: ask? everything plus more than <laughs> I ever imagined saying.
0: Good. Well, excellent. well, thank you very much for your time. We really You're appreciate welcome. it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.